Welcome to Mud 79. I'm Fearless Fred Kennedy, the creator of this totally original and in no way authorized Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you're listening to this, you probably love Star Wars. I do too, and have always dreamed about telling my own story in a galaxy far, far away. A story that's less about the Jedi Temple and more about those who were on the front lines. A boots-on-the-ground story about how those living in the galaxy survive the horrors of war. That's what Mud79 is all about. If you're new to the show, welcome, but please be aware this is a series. So if you don't want to be totally lost, start from the beginning with episode one. You don't want to be a stormtrooper. This is episode 21, Deep Water Clockwork. Kwai and Gwenda tracked down and eliminated a Sesher signal jammer used as part of a large-scale ambush. Kwai was almost killed when attacked by a Republic commando in charge of the operation, but his life was saved by Gwenda's deft shooting, just as air support was beginning to land. Another clone commando? And a jamming tower capable of blocking out Imperial comms traffic? Just how well-equipped are these secessionist forces? Let's find out. The Lardy came in fast, skimming the trees, landed in the clearing, and the doors slid open with Jintala leading the fourth squad. They moved in, rifles up, expecting a firefight. Status, Corporal. I explained the situation, the clone, the tower, what we'd seen, pointed her in the direction of that ad hoc V-35 speeder with the passenger in the front. Show me. Everything was going fast. The sergeant was assessing everything quickly. Had the cloner thrown in binders, dragged onto the lardy, even though there was no way they were still alive. Grabbed the passenger in the V-35 too, who was wearing a set of IRDs. Our sniper on the ledge. Gentala grabbed her by the hair and pulled her head back, threw the binders on herself, and had her dragged off onto the lardy. Was muttering about her being some high-profile target for Imperial intelligence. She's a traitor, that one. Sold out an entire company to some insurgent faction near the Vincu Belt three years ago. Now she's out here selling her soul for credits working for those pompous pricks in the bay. She finished the once-over and ordered us to load up. Spoke to the pilot before the doors closed. Torch that V-35. I want it in the ground. You got it, Sergeant. The front cannons were hot before we were even a foot in the air. Swept the whole front of the convoy. Then popped up over the tree line, zipped back down to the mining outpost. There was smoke everywhere. And I didn't get much of a chance to talk to anyone because the sergeant was on me the whole time getting intel. Direction of the assault, numbers, everything. It was very jarring. Normally, a debrief was almost relaxing. Irritating, but the pace was usually thorough and slow. This? She was nodding taking in everything and wanting more. I just wanted to hear about what was happening down at the town. 
When we land, you're to link up with the other scouts. Charge clips, tend wounds and hydrate. I need you and Mondahai to assess and prepare. Any weak links, let us know. We're not done yet, Corporal. We hit the ground with a thud and everyone loaded off. A few mutters dragged the prisoners along behind the sergeant. I didn't know where anyone was, so I just followed loosely at the rear. Made eye contact with Puenda, waved her over with a head nod. Pulled out some tobacco from my chest pocket, offered her a stick, then prompted her to talk. Tell me what she'd picked up from the others while I was getting interrogated by the Sarge during the flight back. Not a lot. There was an ambush. The people of the town were really seshes, but not really, really. There were seshes hidden in with them. Usual play. Forced their cooperation by abducting kids, taking hostages, and all that. When the shooting started, though, they knew whose side they were on. Their leader, the Marillion, was actually a Sesha plant. It was the Twilight guy beside her that was the head of the mining colony. He tagged her with a stun blast right when things popped off. A stun blast? Didn't expect that. Said they want her alive. Answer some questions. We made our way through the settlement talking in hushed tones. There were a few locals clearing houses, locking doors, nodding to us as we moved past. Not a friendly nod, but a you-can-pass type nod. These were hard folk. Every one of them had a rifle slung. A280s, E10s, even some weird ones that I'd never seen before, thrown together with spare parts. A few semi-automatic slug throwers in the mix, too. Real backwater shit. Across the bridge over the brook near the center of town, headed for the central warehouse, there was a plaza out front. Well, it might have actually been a storage lot for haulers, even like landing craft. Regardless, the platoon was clustered there, everyone just sitting around. Charging stations for the clips out as troopers cleaned rifles and gear. The packs had been assembled and things were set up neat like prepping for a flyout. The medics were making the rounds, checking everyone over. Vama caught me as I was walking by, gave us a look over, then putting his arm on Quenda's shoulder. You have a little trooper? Your leg all right? We explained what happened on the hill. The cloner and the endless waves of enemy guns we waded through. He dropped down and began moving her leg, looking up at her face as he did. Removed her shin guard, then ran his thumbs beneath her knee and down her leg a bit. Well, it's not broken, so that's good. Here, take these. Both of you. Just make sure you get some food in you after. They'll do a number on your stomach lining and we need everyone at peak. He handed us a few pills, prompted us to take them. I didn't even know what they were. I'd imagine they were the go-to cocktail of stims and pain pills. Keep us fired up and moving. I was at the point I never even asked what I was taking anymore. Just jumped through the hoops, Trooper. Saw the scouts milling around near the edge of the plaza. Arkham was laying down. Figured he was having a nap. 
buddy started running his mouth the second I got close. I was you at break into those rations, man. Bama wasn't lying about those pills. My guts are twisted, man. A big knot. I laughed it off, but I ripped open my rations pack and got eating right away, chewing into a personal nutrition rod. Ate two, just to be safe. Kept chewing as I took in the chatter. What everyone had seen, all the details, piecing together what went down while Puenda and I were running through the hills like a pair of grizzled prospectors. You guys missed the show. They must have come down on us with nearly 400 guns. Old battle droids, collars, and a few dozen hardcore sessions. Collars was a term we were using for any of the press gang troopers the sessions were using. They wore the slave collars, and despite being forced into a combat role and threatened with death if they didn't comply, some of them actually took to their role with enthusiasm. Not at first, but the more we saw, the more they seemed to embrace the job. It was getting harder to sympathize with them as you saw more and more of them shoot your friends. But the LT was always very vocal about ensuring we did the emotional work to remember what these people had been through. That a good number were dosed. And it was the drug we were fighting, not them. And now, years later, it's one of the few things I make a strong effort to remember. Maris and I had a decent spot over near the fridge. Loads of cover. We were eating into the enemy flank as they'd approach. Every time they turned on us, we fell back, dug in, and then when the heat died, we'd come back on him and do it again. She kicked Maris. You should have seen this kid. He's reading my mind. Everyone else began weighing in, and it was the same story. An attempted ambush had gone off the rails, followed by some chaotic fighting near the warehouse. Oh which was followed by an intense firefight along the perimeter of the outpost as the Seshers moved in hard to take it. They weren't counting on the locals flipping like that. They'd underestimated how determined these people were. The taking their families and friends hostage only tempered their resolve. I began thinking about those shooters on the towers wondered if I was shooting friendlies. Caught me for a second, and I almost mentioned it, but I saw the sergeants coming out en masse, gathering everyone up. Scouts, join up with your regular squads. LT will be out here right away. Pack your kit light, as many clips and debts as your weapon can handle. I barked, you heard the sergeant, shooting Mondi a smirk. And we got going, reloading clips, snapping things into place wondering what was about to happen. When every pocket was full and every canteen latched, we broke up, leaving our kit piled together on the Duracrete, heading out for our squads. We were broken into four even groups, standing easy, sergeants up front. To the fourth's right was a massed collection of miners, <coughs> over 30 of them. Looked like a guerrilla fighting unit, Twillick, Miri Allen, each one with that thousand-yard stare. The LT rolled out, Murray in tow, and that yellow twillet guy who we learned was the one really running the place. Okay, 79. 
According to Mr. Tato and the information Sergeant Kyra was able to acquire from her prisoners, there's a well-defended enemy outpost, only 20 clicks north of here. The enemy has been using it as a staging point for harassment operations. And, if our newly acquired intel is to be believed, we'll also be in a position to rescue a few dozen hostages. We're gonna take that stronghold, 79. That was nice to hear. An oddly hopeful thing to hear. To hit the enemy back on their own turf. And at the same time, rescue some people. Save some lives. Gave me a weird feeling in my stomach. Mr. Tato and the miners have asked to participate in the assault. Ordinarily, that would be out of the question, but we need all the firepower available. As such, the 79th will pile into the two remaining lardies while the miners converge on the enemy position using their ground transports. We're going to hit them all at once from three sides simultaneously, overwhelm their defences and secure the location for Imperial Intelligence. Ideally, while your lardies are unloading into combat zone, we'll roll in quiet from the west. Then come in guns blazing and catch those shitheads before they realize what's happening. The LT nodded at him, giving him approval for whatever was about to happen next. The Twillet smirked and looked over at his band of fighters. Let's go, you tossers! The locals would need a fair bit more time to get there, so they left first. Convoy of six land speeders dragging hover trailers. About as low end as it got. But the Seshers had been doing the same type of shit since the beginning, and they pulled off more than their share of wins. Didn't really matter how the miners got there, after all, only mattered how effective they were once we engaged. The platoon seemed in good shape, and the numbers were strong. A quick count had us at 40 plus. Not exactly ideal strength when securing a fortified enemy position with spotty intel, but it seemed likely the LT knew a lot more than he was letting on. Regardless, he was with us. He'd be leading from the front. And if he was there, we'd come out all right. The locals were gone and we were given a few minutes of downtime give our gear that final once-over and chat amongst our squad mates, like we did during every combat drill, made things feel a touch routine, which cut down on your nerves. The sergeants were very clear that no one was to use their radio. No one. Zero chatter, period. Didn't even want us using the encrypted channels. Murray told us Orto was convinced the enemy had listening posts, that they were monitoring everything. He wanted them to think we bit it, that the reason there was no chatter was because we were dead. Make them think that raid of theirs was effective. Brought us down. At the very least, keep them guessing. The less they knew, the better. Didn't want them reacting, running, hiding, anything. We needed to hit them. To this day, I'm convinced Orto knew this flyout was a trap. Before we even left the hotel, he knew something would drop on us. <laughs> 
Hence the flyover when we came out of mock, telling one of the lardies to take off under the guise of engine trouble. I saw. Only to have it flying standby, monitoring the situation a few clicks away. No doubt it was coordinating shit with the other lardy that managed to get off the pad and dump its load. Had those birds not been there, we wouldn't have made it out. Their air support and the ability to neutralize entire enemy advances in a single passover, it changed everything. The more we talked about it, the more respect we developed, not just for the LT and the pilots, but the sergeants too. They really held their shit down when it hit the fan. That new sergeant, Mel now with the third squad, saw one of his mutters get cut down near the bridge, had me direct fire at some rooftop where I didn't even see anyone. I hit something because a bunch of blue flame went up right after I leaned in. Opened up a whole new flank and he went off on his own, dragged the kid back himself. Not exactly by himself, Targi. Altherium was up halfway, dropping those classic dead tosses of his. Laid down smoke and even put a plasma round through a window on one of the prefabs. Must have had a four plus head count on that one. Yeah, but think about it. That guy didn't hesitate, just went for it. I like that. That type of stuff gets to FNGs in line. Makes him less likely to hesitate when it counts. I don't mind hopping out of the trench for a guy I know will do the same. Easy, bud. I'm just trying to boost your lifts over here, and you're scorching me for it. We had a good 30 minutes to run our mouths and smoke sticks before loading onto the transports. And it was a tight squeeze. We left a dozen casualties back on the pad. Only a dozen across the whole platoon. And it looked like everyone was going to pull through. Husto was working one of them pretty hard, though. She was 50-50, took a bolt through the gut near point blank when the shooting started. But Husto was almost a field surgeon at this point, had one of the locals on assist to keep her alive. He was giving the local healer a laundry list of instructions and even set up a non-network medical hollow to help her through any questions she might have had. Asshole as he was, he really did care about keeping everyone alive. The LT was finalizing our plan based on what details he had. The rough layout of the enemy position was in a low, overgrown valley. Similar to the mine we were at, but it was more of a large ravine, long and thin, between two ridges off the western slope of a covered hill. There was a row of buildings on the north half, storage facilities, barracks, we didn't know, a road or runway that ran through the middle. Went all the way back into a massive cave opening. Could have been a landing hangar based on the dimensions given by the miners. It seemed like the entire position sort of sprawled away from that opening. The south half was similar to the north, but there were only three or four large-scale buildings. The LT told us the miners suspected that's where the prisoners were being held. Said that we needed to show a degree of caution with anyone coming out of there. 
Squads two and four would share the Lardy landing on the north slope and ensure that anything trying to come in or out of the cave was met with a stream of heavy and constant fire. Squads one and three would have a southern approach. Squad one was to confirm the location of the hostages being held in the larger constructs and defend them for as long as possible. Squad three was to assist in securing the cave entrance. Hopefully, while we were doing that, the miners would roll in hot from the west and protect our rear. Two and four, let's load up. Stick with your squads. We're dropping one per side. Deep water clockwork, let's go. By the way, when Sergeant Hefspar said deep water clockwork, that was one of the terms we used for this type of air insertion. Deep water meant you were going in under the assumption of heavy resistance. And clockwork was the tactic we'd employ, a continuous barrage of firing and advancing. The Z6 rotary cannons would lay down suppressive fire while rifles advanced. Right. Followed by strategic use of the RPS-6. Rockets, 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 rockets. All while our mortar put down as many explosive rounds as needed. And if needed, smoke to keep us covered gas to lessen enemy resolve, and just cause as much chaos as possible. Whatever was needed, this was going to be a spectacle. The LT was on the lardy with one and three. Guess he wanted to secure those hostages personally. Made sense. Those types of situations could get hairy. Needed an experienced hand, and it was as good as it got. Jintala and Hefspar were walking up and down the aisle of our lardy, squads two and four, giving us all a final once-over, checked everyone, and not just the members of their own squads. Hefspar stopped by our squad four mortarman, an olive-skinned human female named Santar. She'd actually been with us since the very beginning. Met her on the crossfire when we were being transported to the Seston Nebula. Quiet heavy drinker, and never took a scratch. When we drop, I want multiple rounds of gas fired into that entrance. Have him coughing and sputtering by the time we get outside. I've only got four canisters of suppression gas left, Sergeant. When they're done, do I just keep firing explosive rounds? You let loose with everything you have. Everything. Then you and your second grab your rifles and get to the front with everyone else. The sergeant gripped her shoulder. Clockwork, you understand? No mistakes. I looked over at Altherium. He was adjusting the debts on his webbing. This guy knew his strengths. While we were loading ourselves with extra clips, he was doubling down on the detonators. We made eye contact and half laughed about how loaded up he was. It was funny, cause a year earlier, we'd have both been so nervous we'd be near puking. But now we were finding comedy in the most mundane things during the darkest of times. I was reminded of that when I looked at Quenda. She was wide-eyed. Not frantic, but she was riding adrenaline. Or maybe the pills had done a number on her guts and she was just trying to keep everything inside. 
gripped my rifle. Took a deep breath through my nose. Caught the scent of everyone else on board. Mixed with the ozone output of the engine exhaust and the damp dankness of near 30 ground pounders who had all spent the day in mud and heat. Engines shifted and everyone slid in their seat. We were close. The ship listed to the side and made a sharp turn. Normally the pilots would be keeping us posted about what was happening, but radio silence meant radio silence. We were in the dark. The cannons opened up and the mass driver missiles flew, full barrage. Everything the ship had. We banked hard left, dropped quick, then reefed back up again, then right, and jerked before spinning and sliding back. There was a slight thunk as the landers hit. Go, go, go! We were off our seats and moving. The landing zone was filled with tall grasses that ran along the edge of the ridge, some smaller rocky outcroppings, boulders that had toppled down from the top of the hill as the elements did their work. Targon was out first, heard that rotary cannon spin as everyone scrambled off. You moved and dropped, a full line taking positions, fanning out and returning fire. Tolan hopped out just before me, and I could see return fire zipping past, bright shards of red and orange. Firing! I looked over as I was running along behind the line, getting to my spot on the end. I caught a glimpse at the perfect time, too. Missile hit something. Side of a shack, building thrown together with scrap, maybe a generator, because there was a significant secondary blast. And bodies flew into the air. Legs kicking, arms flailing, all of it. Like rag dolls. I could see the detail. It was something out of a hollow. That stuff really did happen, I guess. I needed to get a touch of distance between myself and the rank and file. See, in a landing like this, a scout's job is still, well, to scout. I needed to follow along the flank of our position and look a few steps ahead of where we were. Make sure nothing big was coming down the pipes. Normally, you'd radio anything back to the sergeants or LT. But in this case, there were no radios, which meant we'd be running anything important to the closest NCO. I was processing that bit of info as I took in my surroundings. This outpost was bigger than the hotel. It was bigger than our own home position, which housed four platoons. And we were out here alone. A single platoon. The prefabs ahead of us came alive. Dozens of seshers diving into foxholes, built up with Duraweave bagging. There were auto turrets too. Counted six towers. Three were smoking ruins. That initial flyover from the Lardies had done a number on them. Sergeant Shea was a machine on the stead. He was pulling back up pretty quickly, giving as much shit as he could. 
The anti-personnel turrets on the front of the lardies were almost glowing from the blaster output. The other lardy was a bit slower off the hop, but shifting back up and away, directing its mass drivers into the mine opening, which had to be a shelter for star freighters and aircraft. No reason for a mine entrance to be that big. This is Lieutenant Dev Auto of 934-79. The LT was broadcasting on open, a full channel transmission. That was rare, and even weirder given we'd been specifically instructed to stay off the comms, even the encrypted channels. We have located Maverick. I repeat, Maverick has been located. Sector Blue, 456 by negative 83. Requesting immediate fire support from any available units. I didn't know what any of that meant, so I paid it no mind. I was too busy scrambling along the ground looking for decent cover. The grasses were eating so much plasma, it'd have caught fire if not for how damp they were from the constant rain. I saw Puenda tucked in behind a toppled nurse log halfway down the slope. I slid through the grass toward her rolling and slipping through the green muck and shredded vegetation. Pulled up beside her. What do you see? There's a built-up network of foxholes 50 meters ahead, 10 o'clock. Three or four of them are all interconnected with trenches. They see you? Don't think so. They're focused on Targan and Tolan. I leaned around and took a quick look down my scope. Quenda was spot on. Five deep foxholes, connected via running trenches. Looked down the length of the runway. There were three more of these clusters running the length of the trench. The ones further down the line looked to be in poor repair, partially collapsed. But the ones closest to us, and the ones around the mine entrance, they were hopping. I saw some asshole propped up high, modified A280. Put around through his chest, then rolled back behind cover. I expected a sudden barrage of return fire, but it didn't come. Their auto turrets were still beaded into the lardies as they cut back and forth across the sky. Must have been AI controlled. A gunner would have realized the threat was the stream of mutters rolling down the hill. Then, from behind, I heard the pop as our mortars began firing. Car must have been set up behind the ridge line. That was the best thing about mortars, the arc. She didn't need to see her target, just needed the range. Canisters impacted ahead of us. Spewing green gas and jets. That stuff did a number on your lungs. You could still breathe, but it felt like your airways were on fire. Eyes watered. Spit felt like it was cutting into your gums. Just awful stuff. Get your masks on and advance. Take those trenches. We need to get cover. I rolled around the side of our log, sent out a spray of fire. Looked over to see our line hop forward as Targon and Squad 2's heavy gunner put down a stream of cover. Everyone hopped started, staying low. The second our supporting fire died out, the enemy would open up again. 
Gwenda was about to hop up, so I pulled her back down. We needed to keep our distance from the main advance. Our job was to keep an eye out, not get lumped into the fray, at least not yet. I motioned her to follow me, crawl through the dirt, find a spot to get eyes on the target, shoot, and move on. The suppression gas was drifting into the trench line and the seshers were getting frantic. They had deaths and started lobbing them out. Quenda clipped one of their arms and they whipped the throw, which is understandable when half your arm is missing. But the debt blew right on the edge of the foxhole. Not a lot of movement after that. The auto turrets must have had their programming switched because they moved on to us now. Chewing into the dirt, sending up spray. Quenda and I just held tight, staying as low as we could. The heavy bolts impacting all over, just drifting back and forth across the ridgeline. It was so loud, I couldn't hear anyone yelling. I saw the first few mutters spill into the cluster of trenches and foxholes. There was so much gas whipping everywhere, I couldn't tell who was who. Then the roar of an engine. An ARC-170 zipped out of the mine entrance. Then another. And another. Saw a rocket fly up from across the camp. Hit the back end of the third Starfighter. It didn't blow or anything. Those ARC-170s were assault craft. So it just listed to the side and drifted down. I didn't have time to watch it because more kept coming. Another five, at least. This was a full fighter wing. What the hell were we even doing here? Take those foxholes, troopers. We need to get to cover. Move! I saw the chaos in the holes. It was more like pit fighting. Mutters cladding gray, clambering over the edge, shooting seshers point blank as they choked on green smoke. Stomping, kicking. Who knew what the hell was happening on the other side of the airfield? But this, it was tooth and nail. Savagery on a level I'd never seen. Quenda and I got to our feet, dashed along low. We were going in found a hole that seemed calm and made for it. The arcs were swooping back now, dropping streams of heavy fire. Weren't targeting the foxholes yet, but they would be. As soon as they realized their allies were all dead, they'd torch us. No doubt, this was another disaster. We were taking the foxholes, sure, but who knew it was actually inside that cave? If they'd launched a wing of fighters, what else could be coming our way? Hefspar was in the closest foxhole. Heard her yelling. She was slamming some Sesher's face into the Duraweave bags. Looked like a bloody pulp. Saw Puenda hesitate, 
unsure of whether or not to keep going. I grabbed the webbing on her back and gave her a pull. We needed shelter. There was a light coming in from the west end of the ravine. It caught my eye, and my head spun just before I leapt into the fracas below. The miners were finally here. Every one of them letting loose, no order, just a barrage of fire. Most of them were taking pot shots at the arc circling overhead, which was a waste of ammo. Those handheld blasters were essentially useless against starfighters of that caliber. We're done for. Had this fatalistic mentality where I just sort of accepted it. But decided, why not? Let's send a few bolts into this mine entrance. Just, you know, see what all the fuss was about. Tar was still dropping mortar rounds, at least. And that opening was a mess. I was stepping over bodies to get in positions. There were screams all around me. The wails of the dying mixed with heavy blaster fire. The whirring of arcs in the air, just so much noise that it was quiet. I'm almost positive that I had a smile on my face. What was in that cave? What was so important that we needed to be here? I was about to set my rifle into position, get lined up, shoot something, someone, anything. One final fuck you to the asshats that were about to wipe me off the galactic map. Then a holler came out. I was almost positive I'd seen it at the Vibus raid. There was a sudden recognition. I knew it. I knew that ship. Then a mortar round dropped right on top of it. Then another. Then, as if on cue, it was hit by three rockets almost simultaneously. The thing lurched and went down. It's grab lifts losing power, and I was laughing. This was great. What a way to go. The final page in the life of Solomon Quai. When the hauler's blast doors came open, I queued in on it and started firing. I was tight on the scope, had it baited, saw figures through the smoke, and... Everyone took a shot. I burned through that clip and moved to reload. As I pulled back, I saw more fire headed into the same spot. Looked over my shoulder and saw Mondi leaned over the closest trench doing the same thing. Then there was a roaring whine up above. I just popped my clip back in and saw bright green bolts impact the top of the hauler. High fighters. The whole sky was suddenly alive with fighter craft. Must have been 20, maybe more. Those TIE fighters. So agile. They rolled through the enemy fire. Punching away at the slow-moving arcs, we began to scatter as soon as the ties were appearing on mass. 
A set formation of them flew in over the tree line, escorting four DX-9 landers. The landers blowing off torpedoes that devastated the remaining auto turrets. Shrapnel was flying, impacting around us, but I don't remember ducking or even attempting to shelter myself. It was a spectacle. I had a juvenile urge just to watch it all unfold. I was still clinging to that fatalistic mentality that infected my brain. It vanished when a series of blaster bolts from the cave opening ripped into the durweave bagging beside me. Then I dropped slumped down, watched stormtroopers and saber tanks unload from the back of the DX-9s. The sabers rounded the landing craft, and the one in the lead fired its KV-50 beam cannon. A continuous stream of plasma that traced a line of death into that enemy stronghold. The ones at its flank followed suit. Buckets were lined up behind them, and much as I hated them, I felt bad for whoever was in that mine. These guys weren't coming to make nice. All right, man, load your weapon. 79, hold your ground outside the mine proper. Let the tanks and stormtroopers do their job. Our mission is to secure what's out here, sweep every building, and bring any prisoners to the DX-9s. You did good work today. I got to my feet realized I was sitting on a dead body. Sesher, human, pale skin. They were on their back, one arm across their chest, the other laying to their side, gripping a reconstructed E-10. The shoulder and chest were pockmarked with blaster fire, bubbled skin, burnt shreds of cloth. Their face with the reddened lines from the butt end of a rifle deep brown eyes staring up at the sky behind me, a mouth hanging slack and foam pouring from the corner of their lips. Good work. I'd done good work. A Sesher airbase and underground? Just what are those tunnels hiding? And how many more civilians have the enemy taken hostage? That's next time on Episode 22. This is No Cave. Thank you for joining me this week on Fearless Fred Presents Mud 79, a Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you follow the show so you'll never miss an episode. While you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps grow the show and will make my contemptible harpy of a producer very happy. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever else you get your favorite streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and a full listing of Mud79's cast. 
If you want to reach out to me directly, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at fearless underscore Fred or email me at mud79 at curiouscast.ca. This show is hosted and written by me, Fred Kennedy, and Dila Velasquez, the Harpy, our producer. Sound design is by moi, and final production is by Rob Johnson. And I'll see you next week for more Mud 79.